welcome back to the Mod Mentality Show. I'm Chris Lucian and my co-host is Austin Chadwick. And today we have Steve Hallman and we're going to be talking about Scrum Implies Mobbing, uh, OM Science and how it supports mobbing and advanced napkin math and uh, tools and using heuristics when nothing is certain. So, uh, but before we go into those great topics, uh, Steve, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks. So, uh, as I said, love the show and the energy you guys bring to this industry. Um, so my background, uh, I guess I, in the way that it's relevant here in high school, I was reading about Japanese management philosophy, you know, and Michael Crichton was writing, uh, rising sun and, uh, was interested in psychology and, and Myers-Briggs temperaments and things like that. So, um, when I was in the Navy, uh, I had a supervisor that said, they're doing this class on TQM or total quality management, which is all Deming theory. And he said, I think this is really up your alley. Um, the problem is it's all like chiefs and first class petty officers going to this thing. But if I can get you into the class, do you want to go? And I said, yes. So I got a nice like two week uh, course from TQM uh, in the Navy, which really sparked my interest. And then academically, uh, my, my undergrad degree is in management and I studied a lot of management science and my graduate degree uh, concentration is in operations management. So all of those uh, Japanese management philosophies, Deming, um, the earliest management science, Taylor, um, Lean Six Sigma, computer simulation, all of those things I find really fascinating. And most of my career I've spent as a business analyst, business analyst or business systems analyst or implementation analyst, putting in hardware, software, but using all of those OM concepts and OM science within the IT world, as opposed to, uh, you know, trucks or manufacturing cars or manufacturing pipe or something like that. So I'm really fascinated with that Venn diagram of the 120 years that we've learned about operations management science and what the cutting edge of that stuff is and the oldest knowledge there. And then what context of that overlaps with what I refer to specifically as custom software development uh, to differentiate it from some other things. And then, you know, what can we use from the factory model? What can we use that overlaps between the two? And uh, what can we use that's just computer, or excuse me, is just software, you know, development oriented. So uh, my recent career, past several years, uh, I've been a scrum master and agile coach. And so uh, that's what I do. I'm not a coder. I'm super jealous of coders. I read lots of coding books and uh, talk a lot with Tim Ottinger and uh, do things with Jim Copeland and uh, so forth. But I'm primarily an agile process guy and uh, very interested in um, mob and ensemble concepts. Awesome. Well, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Uh, Thanks. Let's see. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Scrum and implies mobbing. So uh, this, the, this might ruffle some feathers or, or maybe not. Uh, so yeah, what, what are you thinking there? Yeah, so this kind of came out of a discussion with Tim Ottinger. He and I kind of go back and forth where I tend to mention things that are agile and Scrum and lean and XP. And I think a lot of people realize that those things are very related. There's a lot of overlapping, you know, kind of Venn circles there. 
And Tim will be very uh, adamant about pointing out when something's not specifically Scrum. And I may, you know, post a graph that uh, says Scrum, and he says that's not really a Scrum concept. And he's he's right. Uh, Tim's always right. Yeah, I can just assume that. Uh, so we had a long discussion about whether mobbing or ensemble programming is a Scrum concept or not. And I think my point was that the name itself, when you go back to the original article of the new, new product development game and the use of the word scrum, uh, it implied the rugby formation, you know, and I talked to a lot of uh, developers and BAs and product owners and scrum masters that don't even know that scrum relates to rugby or comes from a rugby formation. And so the iconic image when you say, when you say scrum, it really should be like, we should have a silhouette logo that people put on the back of their SUV that looks like every member of the team with their arms interlocked, you know, where they're all touching each other in one formation. They're all facing in the same direction at the same time. And they're focused on one ball on the field and moving that one ball forward at the same time. So in my mind, that iconic image alone implies that the team uh, is moving one object forward. And then, you know, the scrum guide, when you strip out the beginning and ending and you just get the content, I think it's maybe nine pages at this point, you can read it while you're waiting for your pizza to get to your house. It's, it's really short. So there's a lot that's not in there. There's the scrum patterns, uh, and, you know, Jeff Sutherland's and, and Ken Schwaber's other books and other materials and things that Jim Copeland has worked on and things like that. So I think a lot of those, and including the swarming uh, pattern, which is part of the scrum plop, um, obviously is, is essentially what mobbing is defined as or ensemble design is, is implied as. So I, I've tried to increasingly focus on that with teams. And I think a lot about the philosophy of team structure and fragility of teams and the concept of anti-fragility and black swan events and how do teams react when when things happen that expose the team's fragility and i think the solution to that is not to be uh, dependent on one individual delivering something you know and if two people are delivering something um, there's all kinds of psychosocial benefits there's the cross training and the cross skilling um, if three people are delivering something, you know, that's even better. Uh, you know, we've had a situation where um, someone's out of the country for an emergency and another person takes normal PTO and they're the only two people that can do a certain process in the corporate governance, right? So with just two people out, you know, that can cripple anything that relies on that specific process to happen. So the more people you get involved, the better. Um, and, I've certainly gotten pushback over the years from managers of development teams who think, uh, I'm sure you guys have heard this a million times, I can't pay two people to write one line of code, you know, much less pay eight or nine people to write one line of code. That's insane. Um, so I've used some, some games and some retrospective exercises. Um, you may have seen uh, Henrik Nieberg's, uh, How Long Does It Take to Write a Name? retrospective exercise, which is amazing. And I've seen that change managers' minds where they, uh, a very skeptical manager who had the, I can't afford multiple people writing a line of code. I did that exercise and I made him one of the developers pushing the card back and forth. And he came out of that saying, uh, holy 
smoke, uh, but other word, this changes everything. Like we've, I need you to come to the management meeting and we need to make them play this game. And I want you to pick out two of those people and make them do this so that they understand the value of doing one thing at a time, um, which I think Scrum is very focused on. And again, that's one of those things that bolsters that. If you're going to do one thing at a time, that kind of implies that the whole team is focused on one thing at a time. Yeah, getting it over the, uh, getting it over the finish line, so to speak. Uh, is not a matter of submitting a pull request and having it reviewed and kicked back and then rewritten and then pushed forward. You you build together, review together, deploy together, and and every everything that might divert you uh, uh, can be handled by somebody in in the process and, and get you past it. So. Uh, yeah, that's super interesting, um, and I do like this idea that uh, that we were we started from a place of collaboration and then maybe uh, got away from that because of the um, uh, the anxiety maybe from the the, the burn rate I guess and so mm -hmm. uh, pretty interesting stuff. So um, and that yeah, the, well that's. So when I teach a, a workshop to get people acclimated to Scrum or Agile, uh, I've continually updated my material so that I'm doing more and more and more uh, precursor and going back in history. And so I start with Taylor and Gantt and go through the PERT technique and Deming and uh, Goldratt and uh, Theory of Constraints. And I cover all of that stuff before I even start talking about um, early computer or, or software development methods and then uh, Scrum and how those tie back to all of those concepts. And I think a lot about what is it that makes Taylor outdated, right? Uh, and uh, I, I tend to use the word Taylorism as sort of a curse, you know, and I see it on Twitter, the, the Twitter tech space, we use Taylorism uh, or Taylorist to mean a bad thing. But we all owe an enormous debt of gratitude to Frederick Taylor and Gantt, you know, some of these early processes. But what has changed is not time, because I've found myself now citing, well, Scrum has been validated for 30 plus years. It, it works pretty well. And so I, I sit up, bolt upright in the bed at night and I say, wait a minute, I'm using time to justify the validation of Scrum or Agile but I'm saying time is bad for Taylorism. So what is it that's different? Um, it's not time that makes a thing true or not true. It's the context. And, and is it still true? And Taylor was working with people that the material that you worked on, you know, stamping a piece of metal or a drill press or something like that, the way that you'll do it for your entire career is exactly the same as the way your boss did it for his entire career. Like nothing changed in 40 years and his boss did it the same way. So you can scale expertise um, that way. And in the philosophy of custom software design, uh, in theory, at least every single thing that we work on is a novel problem. Yeah. Because if, if it wasn't novel, you would just copy and paste the code you already have, or you just buy it off the shelf. You know, if a manager says, hey, can you make me a thing where I can like type like it's a typewriter and then I can print my ideas out? Well, Microsoft solved that problem. Let's just get you a $30 subscription to, you know, to Word. That's what you need. We don't need to write that for you. So 
I think one of the reasons imposter syndrome and um, some of the you know neuroticism and worry and stress of development comes from the fact that every single problem that we solve is like a box and we don't know the answer to how to get into that box until we've gotten in and opened the box. Yes. You, you only know the answer once, once you've solved the puzzle. Um, so yeah, yeah, that, you know, what, what makes a, a factory method or a manufacturing method or something applicable depends on its context. And there's some things that uh, work in the context of factories that don't work for software. There's some things that are both. There's things that you can do in software that physical manufacturing would just be insanely jealous uh, that we can make happen. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. No, I like that a lot. And I think it's good. It's, um, I like, I like uh, the, I guess I got two things. One is your perspective on history. I, I like how you're kind of running through that. And I think it's good to apply the prime directive to history as well, right? Where, uh, so the prime directive, I'm probably going to botch it exactly, but, uh, you know, we the, assume the, that everybody is doing the best they can with the context that they have. Yeah. And the tools yeah. they have. Right. And so yeah. that's a good thing to anytime you look at code or look at yeah. an uh, existing product, but at history as well. Right. Cause we read our current context into their, their context. So it's, it's good to think like, Oh, well in that context that, you know, is feasibly a reasonable way to approach things, you know, where our context is very different with knowledge work and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the second thing I had was, um, I was, you know, it's funny. Uh, so before um, I've been in a more mob programming context, uh, I was doing, uh, I was a scrum master um, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And uh, what was funny is I've never thought about the rugby picture of a scrum and then thought back about it for mob programming. So I'm looking up all these rugby scrum pictures and it's like, oh yeah, that looks exactly like mobbing, you know, in a very, very metaphorical sense that everyone linked arms. And what's funny is one of the pictures that came up for me shows the rugby team linked arms and then they put one computer in front of the-, the Oh, you know, nice. So maybe I'll yeah. put that one in the show notes. But uh, um, so I can definitely see it from uh, Scrum implying mobbing from the kind of uh, uh, almost mascot of uh, Scrum, so to speak. Yeah. Um, that, that seems to appear in my mind quite immediately. But I was also wondering from the Scrum Guide, is there something uh, from a principle or value standpoint that you think uh, causes an implication? And do you think it's like a necessary implication or a feasible implica implication? Or uh, yeah, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I, I think one of the things that actually I actually like about the pre-2020 guide uh, and I understand why they made the change. So, you know, we used to call it the development team. And I realized they changed that to just say the developers, right? So there's three roles. There's the scrum master, the product owner, and the developers. And that used to be development team. And they, they found people were finding it confusing that there's a team within a team. And when you say the team, you know, vaguely, who are you referring to? So uh, I understand that change, but when I work with a team, I, I occasionally slip that in and mention development team uh, specifically because I want to unify that as one role. And, and when I'm teaching a team how Scrum works, it's really important that people understand developers or development team, that's a single role within Scrum. And in the Scrum Guide and all of the auxiliary scrum material, it really emphasizes that 
there's not a QA team and a database guy and a software architect and a designer. Everybody is simply a developer um, or a creator of product. And so uh, I think that that role being one unit or being one thing is part of that implication. Um, there's also the, the unification of uh, the product backlog and the sprint backlog. So the product backlog is, is ordered presumably by value. Whatever is that number one is the most important thing that the team could be doing right now. And even if you're in a, an XP or a modern agile context and you, you don't even keep or worry about a backlog, you just say, what's the most important thing we can do right now? You know, that's singular focus. And that means that the team can have a singular focus. And uh, so that, that latter format, you know, if everything's got to come above and below two other things in the product backlog implies that the team focuses on one thing at a time, which is an implication of unifying the team. Um, and then the, the product or excuse me, the, the developers or development team owning the sprint backlog and then determining how that work gets done. You know, they may decide it makes sense to split the group up or to unify the group or to do some, you know, compromise between those two. Uh, but, there's a lot of discussion or should be a lot of healthy discussion between the developers and the product owner about how to negotiate honoring the order of the product backlog while also honoring the engineering knowledge and the most efficient and effective way to get those things done. And I think that those discussions all point at or come to or really imply that sense of unification. It's nice, right on. Yeah, I could definitely see the connection between uh, those principles for sure. There, there's certainly synergy there. I, I, can, I can definitely see. And uh, cool. Well, that was um, that was a, a good little uh, uh, dive into Scrum and mobbing. And uh, I guess our next topic is OM science and mobbing. So, uh, what's your thoughts here? Yeah. So uh, I actually had an OM thought a few minutes ago when we were talking about Taylor and now I've lost uh, that train of thought. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that I find really fascinating is the idea that a factory is, um, is predictable and it's rote and we do the same thing over and over again. So, you know, Mercedes or Toyota, they produce the exact same vehicle every 93 seconds. Right. And that's the exact opposite of what we do in custom software development. So within an OM framework or operations management framework, software development is more like what they call a job shop. So you might have a general warehouse with like a drill press here and a lathe here and a saw and a CNC machine here. And you don't know what type of work may come in. And it could be long-term work that's repetitive or long-term work that has uh, different customized requirements, or it could be a client just needs 20 of something. So, you know, it varies a lot and you can't align your machines in a way that you say you do this, then this, then this in series, you tend to cluster the machine kind of in a circle uh, or in a way that you can easily get to each machine uh, kind of equidistant from the center point. And then you can uh, make more generalized machines. So rather than having a drill press or a lathe, you might get two or three CNC machines that can be programmed to do one of several different tasks, right? And so that gets to um, P 
people as the machines, you know, in, in Scrum or in software development, the factory is made out of people, uh, which is a, you know, it's a beautiful thing. We have humans and, and interactions with each other and, and personal subjective value that we carry about. And if a person can do two tasks, then that means they're available to take up two potential workstations, depending on what's important at the time. And so there are various tools out there. I've been using uh, Michel Grutjan's simulation. He's got a little online tool on GitHub and there are others there, I think there's like Kanban eyes and a few other um, flow simulation tools that you can plug parameters into and test. And when you do something like that, you can take an unbalanced team where you say um, maybe a, a, a designer or a product owner takes one day to prepare an item for the team and then development, the time ratio is maybe four days or six days, whatever you want to plug in to produce it. And then the QA takes maybe two days, right? So you have this ratio of work, like one to six to two, and then you can run that simulation and it will show you like 200 items passing through the system. And what happens, you'll see where your bottleneck is. You'll see where the, where the work backs up. And then you can tweak uh, what it would look like if you had a team doing those things. What if we had, you know, two designers and two developers and two QA people? Well, that gives you the exact same result because you haven't changed anything about the work ratio. But if development is the thing that takes, you know, a one to six to four ratio, well, maybe we could try six developers or three developers, something like that, and see how that affects the simulation in the system. So those kind of things are really interesting. And then what's really fascinating is you can take a person and say, well, most developers would be uh, able to do QA work also, uh, or probably wouldn't need very much prodding to, to learn how to work, you know, Selenium or something like that. So if I've got a team of say six developers and I take one of them and make him a developer slash QA, and I can set that up in the simulation, then as the system runs and things go through, whichever of those is most needed, that person will do those two skills. And at least in this particular model, you can also kind of cheat and just put in the word full stack and that person will do any of the skills that you line up um, at all. And so you can see what your effect is on working process and um, how much you know things build up on one table between um, stations in the system and what your resource utilization is of each uh, person in the process. And it's really fascinating. It really helps you kind of understand how you can fine tune a team and balance a team. And it really gets to the point that there's a lot of levers we can control and they don't all involve cost. So what I've been playing with is making myself a little spreadsheet and, and picking um, a work ratio like that, like say one day to six days to two days and then say, I'm going to take a team of maybe nine people and I'm going to split up the skills this way. And then I can do things like throttling work in progress. What happens if I just throttle whip and I don't do anything else? That's free. And whip throttling affects cycle time, which is amazing. So, you know, you might run your simulation and it takes 300 days um, for something to make its way through the system. So you think about a stakeholder waiting 300 days to see something uh, and then you, you apply whip throttling and that goes down to say 50 days or 20 days, uh, stakeholders would be really happy if they could give feedback within 20 days instead of 300. 
So, you know, whip throttling is free. Um, cross skilling is essentially free. So if someone knows how to do two different skills and they can step in and do whichever of those need to happen at the moment, that's free. Um, cross training is essentially free. It takes a little time. So you might have to spend a month or two months with somebody learning a different skill, but once that happens, then they can do the cross skilling. So whip throttling, uh, cross skilling, cross training, and then batch sizes is really the last of the free levers. Um, if you break down, you know, vertical story slicing is one of the techniques that we talk about a lot. So if you break a thing down into smaller pieces, you don't usually make the smallest piece of the work ratio any smaller. So for the developer, or excuse me, the designer, it might still take about a day to prepare it, or the product owner might still take about a day to prepare it. But the fattest part of the work ratio, the six days to develop it might cut down to three and the QA might cut down to one. So instead of having one, six, two, you now have one, three, one, for instance, and you can see what difference that makes. And so just by applying those levers, you can do whip throttling, um, cross-skilling, cross-training, uh, cutting batch sizes, all four of those factors are free and you can see what throughput you get without spending a dollar. And then you can say to yourself, let's look at our resource utilization and where are we short? Oh, we need one more person in this specific role. Then when you're spending a dollar, um, you're spending it on an engine that's already tuned to give you the maximum performance. If, if you try to just get throughput by buying brute force, let's just double the number of people in the team. There's two things that you're guaranteed. You're guaranteeing that you're going to increase your budget. Uh, right. So if you double the team, you double your budget. There's no way around that. And you're guaranteeing some percentage of risk that whatever this new person is introduces to the team. It changes your team composition, your social um, interactions with each other. They may not be as good as they claim to be on the resume or the interview. Uh, they may be a little weird and not fit with the team. You know, you're bringing in all these kinds of unknowns. So you've got four free levers you can do with a team of people that are already established working together before you spend any money and increase any risk uh, by, by just trying to brute force throughput. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, kind of going back to that analogy of the, of the machine room and having everything stationed in a circle, uh, it kind of, uh, uh, that also kind of gives a, a good image of mobbing where it's like, Hey, you know, I need, I need a lathe and a CNC machine and I need, you know, and I want to minimize my, my, uh, movement, uh, cost or, or, or movement waste uh, in lean terms, then you're, you're really talking about like, Hey, I have, I have the tester and I have the developer in the same place and they write the test an automated test together. And now, um, you know, we, we, we have a big victory as far as uh, not having to reproduce the test manually and the combined skills. And so you, you have everybody in that circle together, right? And uh, kind of going back to that scrum analogy as well. So yeah, no, yeah absolutely. And there, there's other things that happen there where um, if you operated a physical machine with someone else, they might say, oh, I've never even flipped that switch. I didn't know what that did. Like, that's amazing. Now, next time I do something on the lathe, I'm going to flip that switch and change my gear ratio, you know, or my pulley ratio, things like that. So I've seen incidences in development teams where someone uh, 
uh, just came out of code boot camp. You know, did not have a CS degree in computer science. They've done a, a 12 week or 14 week boot camp or something like that and joined a team. And they knew all these Git commands and GitHub things that you could do because they just learned them in school. And everybody on the team, they, they do the same two, three things over and over and over again in Git or GitHub. And this guy said, Well, there's a GitHub command that does that. Uh, you know, it, it actually was a, a uh, lady on the team, she said, uh, and mid career, you know, she was older and had just gone to boot camp. And she on day one said, Hey, you can do this thing with Git. There's this command. And everybody's like, That's amazing. So, uh, just if, if that person was on their own in a silo, nobody else is going to see that and learn from that. Right. And of course, you know, the senior model is, is obvious too. the person who's done something a long time and somebody watching them do it or helping them do it or working with them to do it is going to pick up those, um, those techniques. Yeah. Right on, right on. Yeah. And that goes to what you're saying before where with mobbing the cross training happens along as you go, which can help, uh, your, uh, throughput utilization and, um, yeah, and that, that's fantastic. And you know what also hit me too when you mentioned that you shape uh, in a manufacturing uh, job shops that we said yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is um, it, it was funny. There's two different stories in my life um, where uh, there's a friend of mine who uh, is a manufacturing engineer, and he uh, be, got really into lean, and so we we're talking about it a lot. And he was like, "Yeah, so what you need is all these U's um, where um, the throughput can go really quickly and you do one item at a time, as opposed to he's saying like, there's even these companies that are really proud of their processes, but they make a thousand parts and then they ship it to another building and then they process those thousand parts and ship it to another building. And he was just, he was just talking about all the waste involved in that and how, um, in a machine shop he was designing, he was doing a bunch of these use. And then we were talking about scaling. He was like, oh, so when you scale, you just add more of these stations, you know, these U-shaped stations, and then you'll, uh, you can make more things. And the funny second story is my father-in-law is a uh, business owner for manufacturing locally. And no, no learning about lean, no learning about all this stuff. All he did is he just had a really good, uh, what I would call a retrospective loop, where mm-hmm. he just experimented with this process over and over again. And after all the years of experimentation, what did he end up with? several U-shaped manufacturing lines to uh, <laughs> have uh, to re- eliminate a lot of waste and make it very maintainable and uh, high throughput. And so, yeah. I, yeah, I, that's great. And, and that concept of uh, kind of centering or circling things doesn't have to just be physical. It can be conceptual as well, right? It can be abstract. So in software, we, we deal with a lot of abstractions and then abstractions of abstractions. So let's say a team grows in size and it gets to a number of people that they want to split into two. Well, you're introducing all kinds of potential fragility and anti-robustness and so forth when you split a team because you introduce new communication channels and the teams may start to deviate in the ways that they do work. So you want to, you want some centralization, you want some unity, some things like that. So if you're going to split a team, you can think abstractly, how can we split this team but have them unified around a pole, you know, how can we have them unified? And I kind of use the mental model of, or draw it out. Like imagine that there's a, a desk or a library and on that, on that bookcase that's in the middle of the room are all of the books and the manuals and the things that you're going to use. And that's where the toolbox is. Imagine one of those big toolboxes with all the drawers in it, you know, um, 
whichever team you're in, everybody comes to the center of the room to get a tool and comes to the center of the room to check a book out of the library. So you're centralizing what they're working from. And so if there are two teams that are pulling work out of the same product backlog, in theory, they shouldn't deviate too far from each other in their work if you're maintaining, um, you know, the team's documentation, the team working agreement, the types of tools that they use, the way that they set up their development pipelines um, or delivery pipelines, those kind of things. You can centralize those conceptually between a team that you split into two or three or so forth. All right. Uh, so it's a little bit of time for us to switch gears real quick. So uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about advanced napkin math before we run out of time. And uh, so maybe what did, what did you want to say there? Yeah. So in the OEM science, we have the benefit of a lot of certain information. So in a factory, uh, the variation of how long it takes to install a radiator is very, very slim, right? I, I know that I can get it done within that 93 second time that the vehicle is going to move. And in software, as we said, everything is novel and everything is uncertain. You know, we might not estimate at all. We might do really rough estimates and those estimates could be wrong by 50% or 200%. And that's okay. The system's robust to that, right? Uh does that mean that we have to throw everything out? So as I go through Taylor up to modern day, there, there's eventually a little noise, like a little violin sound you can hear in the background. And then somebody's eventually going to say out loud, but wait a minute, we're not a factory, which, which is great. That's the time to pivot and say, great. So then let's draw this Venn diagram. Here are things that only work in factories. And if it's repetitive and it's rote and you can do it over and over and over again, you can do one of two things. And one of these I've picked up from you guys and listening to the show so much. Um, my previous answer was use the heuristics. If you can't get exact math or exact numbers, use the concept, build a model and use the concept. Does it matter if the number is precise to four decimal points? No, it doesn't. If you do, if you model something and you get 100% one way and 200% the other way, it doesn't matter what the specific number is. You know something's twice as good as the other thing, right? The second thing that I've picked up from you guys is automate everything that falls into that predictable category, right? Mm -hmm. So anything that starts to look like a factory, you know, if you stub your toe on it three times, turn it into a tool, make it automated, turn it into a robot, anything that can be a robot, make it a robot. Uh, the center of that Venn diagram is anything that works both in a factory and a software setting, just use it exactly as is, right? All those techniques that we've adopted from Lean, um, you can use a lot of those things just out of the box with no modification. Um, so really the advanced napkin math is that things that are factory that don't apply, but you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And then the advantages, the things where you get the massive changes in scale are in those things that you can do in software that you can't do in operations management. So I have a friend who's in the traditional manufacturing business and they make really high-end furniture. And I, I talked to him about um, lean, you know, versus scrum. And we, we share ideas back and forth. And he said, I wish that I could take my customer and give her a really thin slice of a couch in two weeks and her enjoy it and be happy with it and be able to use that couch. And then in two weeks, I'm going to give her another slice of couch and it just magically sticks together with the first one and makes it twice as useful. And she's twice as happy, but I can't, what I have to do is I have to manufacture that entire couch 
before I can ship it to her. And so, uh, you know, I have to calculate my whole factory and my value stream model. And I know that it takes 14 weeks to get a couch through the system. And that's my pain. And so in the software world where we can break things down by just assumption, assumptions of Pareto distribution of value, use that heuristic. Just assume that if, you're, if your product owner works with a team and says, this big feature, we want a big green button and it's going to do this thing on the website. If it breaks down into 10 components, assume that those 10 components are probably Pareto ordered in terms of value. And whatever the one, two, three, the first three things are, that's where most of your value is. And then at that point, it might make sense to jump to a different feature because you may be pursuing something that by the time you get to the end of it, it's worth a dollar in value. And you have this whole other portfolio that's waiting on its first or second thing that might be worth you know, $100 or $1,000. So um, I, I've got spreadsheet models that I've built over the period of two or three years. I just work on them five or 10 minutes at a time. Sometimes I have to reach out to somebody that can do a piece of math that I'm not, I can't remember how to do from 11 years ago. And once I've built that tool, then I can always use it. And uh, I showed you guys that, that story value model where we can't say that every sprint is always worth the same amount of money, but I've been alarmed how many people in the software world just do not think about or do not even consider what the value of the software they're producing is. It just doesn't even come up. They just think we have to fund a team. They are just overhead. They write some software and we have to keep funding them every year. And they don't think in terms of, um, you know, this will prevent the work of two business analysts that have to do a process twice a month and it takes them each four hours to do it and we know their wage. Well, you can add that up and you can say, that's what this software is going to do for us. And that's a cost of delay. Every day that we're not doing that, we're burning that cost of delay. Um, so just being able to take something like that model and say, um, well, at least the team uh, empirically, we can say if this, this team keeps getting funded, they've liked us for the past four years and it costs us $3.2 million to operate the team, we can at least say that whatever we're producing is worth $3.2 million. So you plug that into the model, you can divide it by 26 or 12 or 17, you know, whatever number of sprints you do. And then you can say we passed maybe an average of 17 items per sprint it breaks your value per sprint down into that Pareto model and shows you this is what each story is worth. So when you have a, a team that's just starting in Scrum and Agile and you're trying to explain, do story number one before story number seven, they don't always understand why. And they think, well, story number seven has got that cool new technology. I want to go play with React Native. Uh, or view or elixir or whatever you know and when you can plug in these proxy numbers right there on the title in your card and you can say this story is worth seventeen thousand three hundred and twenty eight dollars and story number seven is worth two hundred and twenty dollars are those numbers accurate no but are they approximate are they a good proxy yes so what that allows me to do is say okay scott if you skip story number one and you're going to go work on story number seven you're lighting about $16,000 on five. <laughs> Is that what we want to do? 
You know, it, it translates, uh, yeah, yeah, I know they're ordered, but I want to work on this thing into these things really represent a dollar value. And it's a step towards getting your product owner to understand story valuation and calculating actual measures and starting to put actual measures on stories. So, you know, that's my advanced napkin math. There's just lots of tools and things that you can build simulations and things where uh, the numbers don't have to be accurate for them to be comparative. It's a, it's a bit like estimation and that uh, we don't care so much about accuracy. We care about using a principle and a heuristic. And so that's where uh, factory science, operations manage, si management science can be useful to us if we just use it as a heuristic level um, and take advantage of those things. It's nice. Thanks for sharing on that. And uh, next time I see uh, a teammate doing that, I'll say like, all right, let me get the money. You want to burn it? You know? Yeah. 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 Well, I, I, I've had somebody say, I want to work on story number four. And I say, are you willing to pay for that? <laughs> nice. Like, are you willing to pay the money for story number one, two, and three? Because I have a customer and customers willing to pay for story one, two, three, and four. Yeah. If you want to pay for story one, two, and three, you can go ahead and start working on number four. Nice. Nice. Right on. Well, that, that's fantastic stuff. Uh, we are hitting time. So uh, maybe before we close though, is there any uh, one last thing you'd like to share? Uh, I don't really have anything to plug other than uh, the Agile Couch, not Coach. The Agile Couch is uh, my website. So theagilecouch.com. Uh, and Steve Twips is my Twitter. So you can follow my uh, little philosophy of coding thoughts on Twitter and uh, communicate back to me. So. Uh, appreciate all that feedback. Fantastic stuff. Yeah, it's, it's been great having you show. I've learned a lot from this conversation. And uh, yeah, to your audience, uh, please like, subscribe, you know, put your comments in YouTube, Twitter more on what, what your opinion is on these things, you know, whether it's, you know, does uh, Scrum imply mobbing? Uh, does OM science imply mobbing? Uh, or any thoughts on the advanced napkin math? We'd love to hear your your feedback and thoughts there. And uh, huge thanks to Steve for being on the show. This was a great time. And uh have a good one, everybody. Uh, mob on and talk to you later. Bye. Thank you. Bye, everybody.